Greetings, my name is Griffin Schaefer. And my name is Scott Peterson. And this is episode 41 of Inside Quizzing. A podcast about Bible quizzing for folks who love the Bible. And in this episode 41, we are going to do a uh, Internationals Recap Part 2. We did an Internationals Recap Part 1 in the last episode while I was still at Internationals. I was on a break. I think it was on the Monday break that we had. So we'll talk a little bit about what happened after that Monday uh, and the exciting finale, finals, whatever it is, to Internationals and some of the stats that came out of that. Very exciting and interesting things that came out of uh, finals there for P&W and for quizzing in general. And then we want to talk through the bulk of, of the episode. We're probably going to be talking about some rules changes proposals. These are some things I think some of them we may have maybe talked a little bit about in past episodes. Maybe the one with Heather, some of this stuff came up. Uh, but some of them are definitely new that we haven't talked about. So we'll be kind of jumping through those kind of ideas and we'll see if we can convince some of you, our listeners, that maybe are crazy rules change proposals are maybe not so crazy and you'll kind of hop on with us. And then of course, we want to talk a little bit about the upcoming season, uh, Pacific Northwest in particular, we're going to be talking about some things that are going to be a little bit different and uh, the same and stuff that's going to be happening in PNW this year, and then wrap up with a listener question if we have some time. So with that, we will jump into International's Recap Part 2. So I know, Scott, you didn't have the opportunity to attend, but is there anything about internationals that we uh, didn't hit in the last episode that you want to kind of touch base before I kind of dive into my perspective? I don't think so. Okay. Well, so here we go. So one of the things about the finals that was different about this internationals as others in the past was it was hosted at Life. Um, so for those who don't know, Life is a really, really big event, uh, for CMA. Uh, it is, I, they, I heard somebody say there were something like 5,500 people in attendance. I don't know how accurate that is, but by my experience, there were certainly a lot of people and it wouldn't terribly surprise me if there were that many people who were there. Uh, it was to the point where we went. So we, we were originally prior to the migration from, you know, location A to location B and location A, we spent several days at Johnson University, small little university south of Orlando, south of the Orlando airport by, I don't know, 20 minutes or something. And, uh, you know, we had a, a main conference area, some satellite rooms for, you know, rooms uh, two, three, and four. And then uh, we had dorm spaces for uh, everybody or most everybody. Some people stayed in hotels and Airbnbs and so forth. And then um, uh, that was for the bulk of the time from Thursday, no, wait, Friday, Thursday, Thursday or Friday. I forget. One of those two days. No, it was, was it Friday? Yes, it was Friday. Sorry, I'm having trouble remembering. It was from Friday through to, um, uh, let's see, to Tuesday. Yes, I think. And we had a little bit of quizzing on Tuesday. Then everybody packed up and we moved and we went over to, uh, a hotel. We went over to a, a Marriott hotel and I quite, you know, non-exaggerationally, this was like the biggest hotel I've ever seen in my life. I mean, this thing was massive. And I mean, I've stayed at some big hotels, but this thing was like 
twice as big. Plus, it was not just like a hotel and a convention center. So it's like, imagine like the Seattle Convention Center or the Portland Seattle, uh, the Portland Convention Center, like that plus a hotel of about the same size together. And then there's like a golf course surrounding the thing. And then there's like villas that are like on the other side. And then there was not just one set of villas. There was like two entire like sets of villas that were like beyond the, the whole hotel and convention center. Like the thing was just massive. Uh, so, you know, it had this, its own little sort of mini mall, uh, inside. Uh, so it was, it was a pretty huge sort of event. So as we migrated from what was a very small university to this massive hotel, there was definitely a context switch that was taking place during that time. The, loading of people into the hotel from from the quizzing perspective did not necessarily go off super smoothly. There were quite a number of folks who didn't end up with rooms uh, quite on time. There were, uh, they, they completely ran out of uh, movable beds, like uh, those rollout beds or like uh, blow up mattresses and that kind of stuff. So in my case, I was actually housed in a room with two other guys and there was one bed so one bed for three guys, uh, no carpet on the floor, no couch, uh, no roll away bed, nothing. So I was like, yeah, I like you guys, but not that much. So, uh, I ended up, uh, calling my wife and saying, help, help. And she was awesome and booked me a little villa that was actually kind of across the way. Uh, which came, uh, turned out to be actually be really useful the following day because I was in this villa all by myself and I, you know, went and, and, uh, spent some time hanging out with the PNW quizzing team and they were looking for a place to quiz. So I said, Hey, why don't we go over to my villa for, you know, a couple hours or three hours or whatever it was. And it turns out that worked out really great. They were able to, uh, practice and we ordered some pizza and, uh, all that kind of stuff. So, uh, I think that worked out really nicely. Uh, I'd say in the finals itself, uh, the sort of the goal of, of mixing championships finals with life was that folks who were at life, who were interested in Bible quizzing could see what quizzing is all about. There were a handful of people, actually more than a handful of people who went up to the quizzing booth, uh, prior to internationals, uh, finals who were asking some questions about it. So, uh, Zach and other leaders, uh, from the CQLT were able to introduce them to some of the finer points of quizzing and why it was so cool and all that kind of stuff. We actually put on a, a short, uh, quizzing demo at one point. Uh, Heather was reading some questions and I was quizzing and that was a lot of fun. Uh, but then, uh, when it came to actual finals itself, we were in a fairly decently sized, uh, room, uh, not one of their big, not the, the, the super big room, but just one of their bigger, uh, conference rooms, medium, bigger size conference rooms. And I want to say we didn't completely fill up the space, but I want to say there was probably about, I don't know, some, this is a non-scientific study. I just completed in my head right now, but I want to say there was probably about a 10 to 15% boost in attendance at finals due to life being in the same place. So that was, that was good. I mean, I would have liked to have seen it be bigger. 
uh, a little bit more attended, a little bit more uh, for all of the hassle of having to move over to the life location at the Marriott. But uh, it was great to be able to have those 10 to 15% more people there to be able to see quizzing. Uh, Heather ended up working out to be kind of like a, an MC for the event, which was fantastic. She was uh, able to kind of walk people through what was going on from a perspective of like, you know, if you've never seen quizzing before, it can be kind of weird if you don't know what's going on. So she was able to kind of explain and narrate uh, during uh, timeouts and between quizzes. And that was great. But of course, the really cool part about it was how the P&W team did, which was fantastic. P&W took second place overall, which was awesome. Uh, although there was a little bit of uh, some hiccups around that. So originally, uh, P&W ended up taking, well, not taking, they earned second place, but they were initially awarded third place because there was a mix up in how that was, how points were supposed to be calculated. I'm not sure exactly how that happened. Uh, but, uh, so after the award ceremony was over, the PNW coaches went and talked to the meet director. They looked at the, uh, the score sheets and, and very clearly, I mean, it wasn't even close. PNW was, was very clearly in second place according to the rule book and according to the point system. Uh, and it was just, I don't know, just some sort of weird goof up that happened. So ultimately PNW was, uh, is recognized as having take, uh, taken second place, which was great. Some other things that were fantastic about it. We had some, uh, uh, some quizzers who did, well, actually all of the quizzers did a, f a phenomenal job, uh, quizzing, but two in particular, uh, won some recognition, uh, in the finals award ceremony. Uh, the first one was Andrew, who uh, took fourth place overall uh, for individual averages, which is amazing. And then Aiden, uh, even more amazing, took second place overall uh, in the meet, which was uh, really amazing. And Aiden also was the highest placed rookie uh, of the uh, of the quiz meet. So that was fantastic. Unfortunately, we don't have too many other details on statistics. We're still waiting on stats, but um, beyond what I've said there, Scott, is there anything else that you want to kind of jump in? I know you were, you know, following along in real time as things were happening across the stats and so forth. So is there anything you want to kind of highlight about what happened? So I have almost two decades, the past two decades worth of PNW Internationals data. So 2000 to present, and I also have 1996 and 1997, so 22, 21 years of data. And in those 21 years, Andrew's average um, of 42, and I believe it was low decimals, so 42.1 or something, um, would, is good enough for 7th, which, which is great. Um, I have 126. Um, so actually 129 PNW performances at internationals over those 21 years that I have data for and Andrew's average was bet seventh best. Aiden's average was third best 45. I believe it was a 45.83 and actually one of the two people that have bested Aiden. Um, so Jeremy in the year that PNW won had a 49 and then it, with a 52 back in 1996 was Christine who was actually Aiden's coach this year, which is totally awesome. Um, and then I also, I keep a stat that I kind of like, which is I add up a quizzer's international's averages for their entire career because, um, it is an accomplishment just to make it to internationals. And if you do well over multiple years, your averages add up and 
it's kind of a it's a combination of number of times that you make it to internationals as well as how well you do there. Um, and I think it makes sense to compare quizzers on this stat at the internationals level. It doesn't make sense at the district level, but at the internationals level, after only one uh, meet, <laughs> Aiden is fifteenth among PNW for his career. Um, if he put up another such meet, he would be fifth. Um, so quite a quite a good start to his career. I, I think he's a tenth grader. Um, I'm I'm happy he's still behind me. Now I have two data points. Aiden only has one. So the fact that he is a mere like five or six average points behind me, he he is doing quite well. Um, but Andrew finishes his career third um, with 103 average points over three internationals appearances, um, which is quite good. So he actually has a better career average than either David or Anna who are ahead of him. Um, but it's obviously a, a big credit to David and Anna for qualifying four and six times over their whole career. So good job for both Aiden and Andrew leading the team to second place. And then as far as overall stats, I'm definitely still waiting on it because I have full internationals individual stats from 2004 to present. So that's 16 years of data. Um, and I'll be able to pull out a lot of cool anecdotes. Like, for example, the number one quizzer at this year was Annika from South Atlantic. And her career internationals um, averages looks like she's going to pass Benjamin from South Atlantic and Sheldon, who had um, good careers. And Annika will still be short of Daniel, who um, made internationals three times and averaged almost a 50 um, over three years. Quite quite impressive. Um, but I definitely can't wait for those stats. And it looks like over the past 16 years, uh, six, five districts have very clearly separated themselves from the others. Um, and that would be Western PA, Canadian Midwest, Western Canada, Pacific Northwest, and Northeastern. Those five districts have an average quizzer's average of 14 or greater, um, and no other district has an average quizzer's average over 13. Um, and we saw that once again this year with two Canadian Midwest teams and a PNW team in finals and a Western Canada team that nearly missed finals, and all five teams from the country of Canada qualified in top nine. So as a country, they did very, very well. And those yes, are my, my anecdotal stats for this year's internationals. Yeah, it was fantastic. And, and I mean, we've been talking a fair bit about Andrew and Aiden and for good reason, they both quizzed extremely well, but we shouldn't forget the other uh, three folks on the team who really made a huge contribution to P and W throughout prelims into brackets and in the finals as well. I uh, I remember uh, somewhere along the line, I forget exactly when it was, but I think Scott and you and I were were texting back and forth uh, at some point. I, I think it was during brackets or something. And you had made a very uh, cogent point about uh, depth being extremely important uh, at the internationals level. And that was that was really true. I think, you know, if we had had only, say, four uh, or even three uh, really top notch quizzers and one or two people just kind of filling the last couple of chairs, I think it would have really, really significantly hurt us. One, you know, chief example to that was probably the most... Uh, I don't know, heart stopping moment of the, of the entire, uh, quiz meet was in quiz three of finals. 
so so quiz one, uh, CMD two won first place. In quiz two, P and W won uh, first place. So if I so in quiz three, if either CMD two or P and W took first place, they would have won first place overall for the meet. So P and W starts off uh, quiz two, and that one's the the quiz two is the one that they won. They started off quiz two really. I don't want to say dominating the quiz, but certainly being in control of the quiz, very much in control, even from, you know, the first couple of questions out of the gate, they were, they were strong. They were the ones setting the pace. The other teams started jumping a little bit too fast. PNW was not sort of pulled into that. They, they exercised really intelligent control throughout that quiz. And I thought that was like, just a it's a just a beautiful quiz that they that they had in quiz two they ended up winning and that was great we started in a quiz three and by comparison to quiz two quiz three for pnw started out a little bit slower a little bit harder they were starting to fall behind uh if i remember correctly i want to say it was like you know question five six seven or so they were kind of struggling a bit and somewhere around the middle of the quiz, they started to get it back, started to kind of push things closer and closer and closer. And by question 20, uh, they were, I believe it was 80, 80, 60, where the two CMD teams had 80 and P and no, 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 no. It was 80, 80, 50. Uh, and so both the CMD teams were tied at 80. PNW had 50 going into question 20. Sam jumps, gets third, well, third or fourth quizzer bonus. I forget what it was at that point and ties it up 80, 80, 80. Uh, concluding question uh, 20, taking us into overtime. I mean, that was a phenomenal event. So, I mean, if you, if you want to see how, or experience kind of how close this, 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 fi this finals was, that's a perfect example of it where uh, really anybody could have walked out of there uh, winning first place. So, I mean, it was, it was brutal, but it was interesting and everyone fought well and I, I just I couldn't be prouder of of how P and W performed both both during the quiz and how they they handled themselves after the quiz as well. So I've got a few more stats updates. Um, all that you have said is quite true, and depth is very very important. Um, before I get to depth, Andrew's average was actually forty two point five, which is good for sixth, um, not seventh, as I had earlier said. David Norris got a forty two point two two. But Andrew's is better than that. So sixth for Andrew. But in internationals, when you have a deep team and especially a strong team, it makes it harder for all those individuals to do well individually, which is of secondary importance. Um, but it's also easy to highlight at the end of the meet. But really what you should be comparing is if I was the second best or third best or fourth best or fifth best quizzer on the team this year, how how good did I do compared to other second or third or fourth or fifth best quizzers on the team um, in those years, if that makes sense? And so looking like Andrew, this was the best average ever or in the last 21 years by a number two quizzer within PNW. Abigail was the seventh best. So this is out of 26 teams. Seventh best number three quizzer. Um, Lincoln was 18th best. And Samuel was so Lincoln was the 18th best number four quizzer, and Samuel was the seventh best number five quizzer. And so I think it'd be easy to say like, oh, Samuel got a three and Lincoln got a five; those are unimpressive averages. 
But when you have a strong team, it's very hard for all five quizzers to be consistently getting questions. And so it's really cool when your fifth best quizzer was the seventh best, fifth best quizzer like over the last two decades. And it means that he got, I think, three questions over prelims. And it's almost a guarantee that each of those three questions was a third-person bonus. And it's just massive. Like nine points is an incredible difference when you're trying to make semifinals or avoid XYZs. And so the points that seem small um, at the district level become greatly magnified at the internationals level. Yes, indeed. Yeah, I mean, at the at the internationals level, quizzing is a game of inches. Uh, it, it's a very, very tight uh, competition. Uh, the margin for error error is very, very small. So if you can contribute a tiny but consistent value to the team, it is exponentially more valuable than what you would expect the same sort of contribution to be at districts. And so, you know, I, I'm I'm super proud of what these guys did. It was just it was really impressive to watch. It was very enjoyable to quiz master both them and the other teams uh, from across both countries. And so it was it was just a fantastic experience overall. Awesome. Well, with that said, uh, let's kind of move into some rule changes, things that we've been talking about a little bit. Uh, I didn't, so before we begin each show, uh, Scott and I write up some uh, notes about what we're going to talk about. And I don't think I did a particularly good job of actually writing all of the rules changes in our notes here, Scott. So, uh, are there anything, any kind of ideas that you want to hit on before we kind of dive through this current list? I don't think so. Everything on this list looks like, um, between what we covered last week and what is on this list, I think it covers everything. Cool. Well, so the first thing on our list is uh, something that may not necessarily be super popular, but I think it will end up becoming very popular after it's done, which is to rewrite and reorganize the rulebook. So one of the things that I experienced as a Quizmaster at Internationals this year was um, there are a lot of, uh, as you would expect at the Internationals level, some extremely smart coaches who show up to the meet. Uh, certainly the quizzers are exceptional uh, when you get to internationals, but so are the coaches. And I found that there were quite a number of coaches representing a wide swath of districts who were very intelligent, who really knew their their rule book uh, very well, who'd studied and prepared with the team. Uh, several of them had memorized right along with their teams, and that's fantastic. But even so, in that context, we found differences between districts uh, around certain rules, which I found very interesting because we're all using the same rule book. We all have the same black and white, you know, letters uh, that are in, uh, you know, each of the, the versions that we use. Actually, it's only one version that we use uh, collectively. And yet there were, you know, multiple very smart coaches from different districts, but because of their districts doing interpreting things just ever so slightly differently, we came together and realized like, oh, well, we do it like this. Oh, but we do it like that. And we would go back to the rule book and realize, yeah, you know what? You can actually kind of interpret the rule book two or three or four different ways. And there it's, there's, there's some ambiguity there. So. Uh, sometimes there were some cases where the rule book was not ambiguous and folks were just, you know, misunderstanding or, or didn't read the rule, rule book carefully. But most of the time it were, it was, uh, situations where it was like, yeah, you know, we're just taking a slightly different view 
on a particular, we're interpreting a particular language in a slightly different way. And those two different ways are congruent with the rule book, but are non-congruent with each other. So what I'd love to be able to see is uh, to rewrite the rule book, uh, not from a let's change the rules perspective, but rather keep the rules as, as close to the way they are right now, uh, but rewrite the phraseology so that it flows a little bit better and is less ambiguous. It's, it's much more clear to people who don't have any kind of quizzing background. And for those who that do have a quizzing background, they can read it and be, uh, can check their own kind of cultural lineage with the, the, the new phraseology of the rulebook. The other thing that I'd really like to do is reorganize the rulebook a little bit. And that's just meaning taking certain sections of the rulebook and merging them together in different clusters. So that one of the things that I found in some cases when we were, when we had uh, some challenges in my room is that my answer judge and I would have to open up the rule book and then kind of hold our fingers in different slots as we were looking at two or three different sections of, of the rule book. Now, fortunately, you know, uh, both my answer judge and I were familiar with the rule book. We knew where within the rule book to turn to look up certain bits of information. Oh, this is much more about the question type. So it's going to be in this section. This is much more about what the quiz master should or shouldn't do. It's going to be over in this section. So we were able to find those things very quickly. But in comparing some of those things, they were disjointed a little bit. So I'd love to see the rule book kind of reorganized a bit so that it would be easier to go to just a single spot for a given, you know, challenge or whatever it happens to be that comes out of uh, the rule process and the adjudication process. So with this, with that said, um, Scott, what do you think? No, that makes sense. I think the rulebook has undergone bloat, and it is fairly common to have multiple references to the to a similar rule or type of rule in different locations. Um, for example, there might be something under the definition of interrogatives, but also something under the definition of an invalid question um, that refers to interrogatives. Um, and just in talking with you about a few rules situations. Um, I ran into a few things that are talked about all over the place, one of them being um, who has authority at the table between the quiz master and the answer judge. We're going to get to that later. But that is um, talked about ambiguously in one location and then kind of hinted at and or implied in a few others. And it just makes it really difficult to decide, like, what was intended and what is being said here. Um, as time goes on, I get more and more appreciation for how hard it is to write um, things that will be interpreted unambiguously and objectively by many different people. Um, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't try. And I was just talking with a quizzer and he said, there's, Hey, there's guidance on situation quotations, not exceeding two verses, but there's not really any other guidance on question length. Um, and maybe there should be. And I said, well, you're, you're mostly right. Under interrogatives, it says they have to be reasonable in length. But again, um, that could be something that is more termed as a guidance or best practice to question writers, but not a rule that can be challenged. Um, and I think there's a lot of rewriting and reorganizing that can be done. And it probably feels daunting to people because when you're moving things around, it becomes harder to verify that things have not changed. Um, but people have long talked about there being difference between rules and procedures. And those are very intermingled in the current rule book and, um, there's outdated stuff, there's 
structure of competition stuff. And um, there definitely is a lot that could be organized. And I bet even ignoring the last eight pages or so, which is um, meet structure and um, like scholarships and things, I bet you um, the rulebook could be reduced in verbosity by half with really no functional change to quizzing. Yeah, I tend to agree. I tend to agree. And I think it would actually improve things dramatically because it would reduce the uh, the sort of the differences between districts. Uh, and then certainly districts are always free to uh, do whatever they want. I mean, generally, it, it's in a district's best interest to, generally speaking, follow the international's rulebook. But I mean, you can do whatever you want at the district level. It's really more an advantage to have a rule book that's clear uh, at the internationals level so that when people show up, they're not surprised. I mean, we actually had in the coaches meeting uh, on the first day that we were there, we actually had one coach and I forget what district uh, she was from, but we had one coach who actually thought that there were some rules that were getting added to the rule book right then and there at internationals that, that they hadn't, they had no, um, sort of advance notice for where those rules came from. And Heather explained like, no, this is always the same. It's always been this way here. Here's what the rule is. And she did her best to explain. But my point is really the coach perceived that the rule or whatever rule it was that she was talking about was brand new. It certainly the interpretation was brand new to her. And I think if we rewrite, rewrite and reorganize the rule book, I think we can not eliminate that, but we can certainly reduce it. Uh, the, the likelihood of that happening dramatically. Yep. I definitely agree. Well, let's see. So the next idea that we had on here is kind of a geeky one, kind of a nerdy one. Uh, and I don't mean quiz nerdy sort of thing. I mean sort of technical computer software geeky nerdy sort of thing. And that is take the rule book and actually break it up into uh, chunks of Markdown, uh, Markdown format, and host it on GitHub. Griffin, what is Markdown? Ah, yes. So Markdown is a very simplified way of taking a text document and essentially marking it in what is considered to be a, an easily human readable, human understandable form so that it will render uh, semantically. So for example, uh, you just type some words into a paragraph in a text document, it renders in, say, on a web page as a text document, uh, sorry, as a text paragraph. If you uh, have a little line of text and you put a single pound symbol at the very beginning of the line, it shows up as a title uh, or a, he a header level one and things like that. You can put asterisks around brackets of text and that will either italicize or bold the text, these sorts of things. That part isn't so much important, but what is important uh, in converting the rulebook into Markdown and then placing it on GitHub is GitHub is a revision control repository system for code, predominantly software, but also for content. So there are a lot of books that actually are hosted, usually technical books for obvious reasons, but things that are actually hosted on, on GitHub because you can monitor the changes to those things very effectively. So the idea being that, and this is going to get a little bit geeky here. So if you if you happen to be a software developer, you're going to follow along just fine. I'm just going to talk about some of the advantages of using Git revision control. But essentially, imagine the rulebook existing on GitHub, and it's a public website. Anybody can view it. Uh, anybody can actually sign up for an account and make suggested changes to the content, which aren't 
aren't automatically rolled in, you certainly, you have a review committee that's going to be the CQLT that gets to monitor that stuff and, and then adjudicate what goes in and what doesn't and so forth. But you have this content that's out there that is constantly evolving and yet you can lock down a particular a revision point and say, this is the revision point that we're going to use for internationals, whatever it happens to be. So I'm imagining sort of a constant iteration of rules, uh, adjustments, corrections, improvements, and so forth over time. But then say, you know, 12 months or nine months or whatever happens to be before internationals, there's a particular point where the rule, rule book gets locked at that particular version and it says, or edition, and we're, we're going to say, okay, that's the one that we're going to use at internationals. But the rule book underneath it can continue to evolve and all of the changes are tracked. All of the changes can be queried either by humans or by programs. And one of the things that I find really great about it is that you can propose changes uh, to, let's say, any particular piece of content, and that opens up a discussion forum, essentially, a way for people to be able to say, okay, regarding this particular change, do I like it or not, and why? And there can be debates and discussions and corrections to the amendment process and so forth. And it's almost in a way, uh, almost like a like parliamentary procedure where you have a document where you take motions for the amendment of the document, you have discussions and votes on those sorts of things, and then they can be automatically incorporated or not. And all of that comes for free on GitHub. So I'd love to see the rulebook moved there for actually a couple of different reasons. I think number one, it's going to help everyone be super clear on what's going on with the rulebook. Uh, for people who are not particularly technically inclined, it's still very easily accessible. Uh, you can export the rulebook out of GitHub and publish it in, you know, a Word document or PDF or whatever it happens to be very, very easily. But then for folks who want to get engaged in the rulebook maintenance process, it GitHub provides the tools to be able to play around with that in a very effective, very easy and free way of doing it, which I think would be really great. But wait, there's more. Uh, one thing that I would love to be able to see as a result of having the rulebook split up into chunks and put on GitHub is that we can tag these things based on sort of the concept of what each rule is related to. And then in CBQZ, I can go in and say, okay, I want you, CBQZ, to query the GitHub repository for each question, for its type and where we happen to be in the quiz, such that any particular time there's a challenge, in CBQZ, you could just click a button that says, like, show me the related rules, and it will show you only the sections of the rule books that of the rule book that actually it has some sort of relation to the question that you happen to be on. So if you happen to be on, say, a situation question, it's not going to show you the rules around an interrogative or a multiple answer or a chapter reference or anything like that. So it'll show you the rules that that pertain to the situation that you happen to be in. And uh, I think that's that that helps certainly in being able to adjudicate things very quickly. Now, certainly you're going to still have the entire rule book easily accessible so that you can branch beyond whatever CBQZ thinks is relevant in your situation. But for a quick reference, I think that can be invaluable. Yeah. And I, let me try to further um, 
make this less intimidating. Markdown is just a text document. A lot of people use, say, Microsoft Word documents. But the problem with those is you have to have paid for Microsoft Word or Microsoft Office to be able to open these. But Markdown is just a text document. So if you've ever used a document that ends in .txt or .rtf or .md or um, just these very common um, formats that will anyone anywhere can open these for free. And then Markdown just has a few extra bells and whistles that you don't have to know about or care about. But um, it's free and easy to use. And then by putting it on GitHub, currently if we were changing the rulebook, you would probably track changes in Microsoft Word, um, put version numbers in the name of the file and email it around or maybe store it on someplace called Dropbox. But it's still a lot of overhead to manage differences and changes and versions. And that's the whole reason that GitHub was invented in the first place. And so all of that kind of is taken care of for you. And so if all you care about is I want to know what the latest version of the rulebook is, I want to know what version is the latest for internationals this year, and I want to see a list of all the ongoing discussions on changes, you can go easily see each of those things. And if you don't care about one of those things, you never have to look at one of those things. If you don't want to submit a proposal and engage in a discussion on a change, you don't have to. Um, And that's kind of the beauty of GitHub, that it has a lot of cool stuff that the people that really care about it can take take advantage of. But if you're not technological, it's just a text file, and we've used text files um, in our jobs and at church and things like that. So um, I think it would be a really good solution, and it could help if we're rewriting and reorganizing to ensure that um, everything, um, nothing got functionally changed in an attempt to rewrite and reorg for pure parity. Yes, indeed. All right. Well, with that said, let's move on to something that Scott hinted at, which was the idea of who has final authority in a quiz room when adjudicating a decision. So is it the QM or is it well, the quiz master? Is it the quiz master or is it the answer judge? And so, Scott, what is the what is the official answer? The official answer is I don't know. Um, I'm trying to find under answer judges. It says all conferring among quiz master and answer judges shall be done privately. The spokesperson will announce the decision. The head answer judge shall be the spokesperson for the group. So it says that the head answer judge is the spokesperson, but it doesn't say if the buck stops with the answer judge or not. Right. Um, what is it? There are other places where it is referenced. It says answer judge will watch the quiz master's questions for accuracy of reading. That's actually not super related. Um, under an answer is correct when um, I can't find it at the moment, um, but it definitely makes references to the. Oh, here it is. All material given by a quizzer must be from the context of the question. Context should be limited to five verses before or after the verse. Um, then there's the sentence, which is not relevant to this. Rather, the quizzer must say a complete thought or phrase that conclusively puts them out of context as ruled by the answer judge, which kind of doesn't necessarily imply, but it basically says the only official that can be ruling on out of context is the answer judge, which would be an odd thing, you know, for the answer judge to be the only person that can rule on it. But that's kind of what that rule is saying. Um, And then there was another place where uh, the answer judge is referenced. And um, it just seemed weird to me that they're like spokesperson doesn't necessarily imply authority. Um, 
and there are other references to the answer judge leaving me in great doubt over who is really has the authority. Now, myself as a quiz master, that was never a problem because I never viewed my answer judge as a potential adversary. I kind of always viewed it as, well, we just are trying to get it right. And if there's a subjective or difficult ruling, we get two viewpoints to try to make the best possible ruling. And so if my answer judge ever wanted to make a ruling that I thought was really, really bad and wrong, I would kind of try to keep talking with them and reason it through. I would not just say like, well, you have the authority, go ahead and announce a terrible decision because we just want to make whatever's best. And so um, I would always talk it out with my answer judge and get to a point where we're both very comfortable with the decision that we will make. And then I always announced it. I know that it says the answer judge is the spokesman, but I always announced it and I always announced it as the table's decision. I, I didn't feel like anyone needed to know whether this was more the answer judge's thoughts or more my thoughts. Um, I just said, this is what we came up with as our best application of the rule book. Um, so yeah, those are my thoughts. Yeah. So, I mean, I like, like you, I generally speaking, it's never been sort of an issue because typically it's two different brains. And so if you have a difference of opinion, you talk it out and usually you figure out like, what the right thing is. The goal is to get to right, not to be right. You know, that, that's sort of the, actually not sort of, that is the goal. And it's the, the motive behind all officiating, uh, in, in quiz, uh, in Bible quizzing. The trouble comes when the two, the, the quiz master and the answer judge reach different conclusions that are mutually exclusive and they talk it out and can't come to a consensus. And that's something that rarely happens, but it does happen. And so the, at that point, it's kind of like, well, what do you do? Right. So, you know, if a quiz master is looking and we were kind of talking about the rule book, right? You know, if a quiz master is looking at the rule book and says, but the rule book says this, and the answer judge looks at the rule book and says, well, but I interpret that differently than you. I interpret it to mean this other thing. Right. Uh, well, who wins, right? How do you, I mean, you talk about it, right? But the QM could say, well, but in my district, we always interpret it this way. And the AJ could say, well, okay, but in my district, we interpret it this other way. And and certainly at internationals is a great example. The QMs and the AJs are not from, in a particular room, they're not from the same, ideally, they're not from the same district. Uh, so certainly this sort of, um, I don't know, discrepancy in interpretation can can show up in in certain circumstances so in that regard ultimately what do you do right and so what what from my perspective what i've always experienced and this is more cultural this is not directly from the rule book because like you know like scott what you were just saying it, it the rule book doesn't really unambiguously say what to do but in my experience at the district level, the QM always just sort of wins. And part of that is because usually at the district level, we don't have AJs. We don't have the luxury of, of having, uh, answer judges in every room or even, you know, ever in some cases. I mean, occasionally we're blessed to have some extra folks and we can, uh, use them as answer judges, but sometimes we can't. And most of the time we can't. So generally speaking, the culture has just developed that the quiz master ultimately makes the ruling. Uh, so then another cultural thing is that, uh, at internationals, that is flipped a little bit. And, and at Great West, it's also flipped because the answer judge rules on whether a quote or a finish type question has been recited word perfectly in full rotation. So often, actually, 
pretty much every time that there was a quote or a finished type question in my room, I would read along the, the card uh, or the piece of paper, just like the answer judge was. And at the, when I thought the quizzer got it right, my head would swing over to look at the answer judge who would then give me a nod, right? And, or, or a shake or something else like the, it, it, but usually a nod. And then I would count the quizzer correct. I would not count the quizzer correct until my head swung over and looked at the, at the answer judge and, and I got some kind of, uh, you know, positive confirmation from the answer judge. Very similarly at Great West, uh, Heather was, I, I was the answer judge in, in Heather's room. Heather was the quiz master. And every time there was a quote or finished question, Heather's head would snap over to me for looking for my, you know, head nod or shake or some kind of indication. And then she would count the quiz or correct or incorrect. So. Does the answer judge ultimately have the final say on those sorts of things? Well, what if the answer judge has a different interpretation of what full rotation means on a quote or a finish uh, type question? And the quizzer, the quiz master is looking at that saying, well, they made a full rotation. And the answer judge says, well, they said it all the way through, but then they made a mistake. And well, who's right? And how do you adjudicate that? And that's where the rule book gets quite, quite silent, I think. Yeah, I think you're I think you're right. And I don't know. I guess in all my internationals and Great West experiences I must have been blessed with really, really good answer judges. But I I think one thing that we've talked about is it should it should probably just be the quiz master who has authority because they're almost always the most experienced official at the table. And when it comes to internationals, I think a lot of times the answer judges are quiz masters in their district. And if they're not quiz masters internationals, it's probably because other people were selected. So I would, I think it's a pretty foolproof thing to just say a quiz master has final say. Um, and we have structure in place via challenges, protests, and getting the meet director for, to make sure that things are done correctly. Yeah. Is there any rule that says the answer judge is the, is the one who rules on quotes and finishes? No. So I think the reason that that is most commonly done is because quizzers are often quoting fast and a quiz master has other duties around reading a question and identifying a quizzer and starting timers um, that it makes it just easier if you have an answer judge who their only job is to be staring at the verse before the question is even read um, and to be listening for that. I always asked my answer judges how they wanted it done, and they have always said, like, if you are confident in your ruling on finish the verses and quotes, just go ahead and rule. And so oftentimes the quizzer didn't start quoting until I was able to look at the verse or it was a short verse or they were quoting spectacularly clearly and slowly. And I just ruled on it. Um, but I would definitely look to my answer judge when they were going faster or if I had to say again, things like that. But um, I would clarify that with my answer judge before the meet started. Um, and it was probably 25 to 50% of Kiever's questions. I was just ruling on them correct. Um, without consulting with my answer judge. Yeah. Well, another idea that we threw out here for potential changes, uh, this one's, uh, I came up with this one. Uh, it kind of bugged me at internationals. Uh, they changed clarify to identify for pronouns instead of clarify him, her, they it's, uh, identify him, her, they, uh, and I don't like that for a couple of reasons. First of all, 
it's different than what I've done. And I don't like change because I fear change. Uh, that's really honestly the biggest reason. But beyond that, uh, there is actually a difference between the word identify and clarify. The, a pronoun actually provides identification. It doesn't necessarily provide exact identification, but it is a form of identification. When we say him and we say, well, that's not clear enough. We need to reduce ambiguity. What we're talking about is clarification. Clarification by definition is the reduction of ambiguity, the removal of ambiguity, uh, not just an identification. Him can be an appropriate identification. It's a little bit vague, but uh, when you want to remove ambiguity, you clarify. And so I'd, I'd like to just say clarify, and then the pronoun name. And honestly, I'd take that a step further. There, there's some folks who will say, and I think this is even in the rule books, can you identify him? I don't want to ask a quizzer, are you capable of doing something? You just tell the quizzer, identify him, or in this case, as I would prefer, clarify him, right? Clarify her, clarify they. I think that's perfectly sufficient. And all the whole, like, can you is just wasted extra space that goes into it. But then taking it a step further, and this is where maybe it starts to get a little bit, um, uh, I don't know, what's the word I'm looking for? I, I think somebody somebody could argue with this next point. If I were to say, well, generally speaking, you're only ever clarifying one pronoun, and it's usually really, really obvious. Actually, it's pretty much always really, really obvious what pronoun that you're trying to clarify. There will be only one him, only one her, only one they, you know, that kind of thing. So I'd love to be able to just say, go back to the original thing, clarify your pronoun, or simply clarify. Uh, if a, it is very similar to more has a very specific meaning, uh, again, has a very specific meaning. I think the word clarify can have a very specific meaning. So if the quiz master just simply says clarify, the quiz, the quizzer really is going, especially at the internationals level, is going to know exactly what you mean, is going to know exactly the pronoun to clarify, and is going to know how to clarify that. So just say the word clarify and be done with it. So anyway, Scott, what do you think? I think that mostly makes sense. Um, yeah, the, the leading language of can you is unnecessary. We don't say can you can you say more? Can you say again? Um, we just say more. We just say again. Um, so it would definitely be simpler just to say clarify. You're right. Now that I'm looking at the rule book, it only has identify as a possibility, which is shocking to me. I thought it, it had both identify and clarify. I think clarify is better. I can adhere to anything as long as it's done consistently, though. To your last point, there are definitely situations, well, no pun intended, where um, clarifying a pronoun is ambiguous. For example, who to whom situation questions where, like, he said to them. So if quote is complete, you can say quote is complete, and the quizzer is like, he said to them, or he replied to them. And you're like, clarify. And then it gets really murky when the quizzer is answering what you're um, referring to, um, or if a proper noun that they're giving you is incorrect for a given pronoun when they're actually intending it for another pronoun. And this will often arise when there's just a who said it, but the quizzer will just add on like a them, like they'll say he said it to them, and the to them is actually not in the text. Um, and so when you say clarify, they might say the them as like the Jews. And actually from the context, this quote was being said to the Jews. But as a quiz master, you kind of have to then say, well, they said Jews. I was asking them to clarify 
and the only pronoun I need them to clarify is he, and Jews is incorrect for that one, so they are incorrect. But on the quizzer side, you could argue that that's kind of just generally misleading. So now I, I like the clarify the specific pronoun. Um, I think it removes a lot of ambiguity. And then um, it clears it up on those situation questions. If either the quizzer gives two pronouns and there's only one, or they give one and there's only two, um, it makes it really easy for a quiz master to know exactly the process to take. Like if, if the quizzer says he said um, he replied to them, but the text only says he, then as a quiz master, you're like, can you clarify he or clarify he? And then conversely, if the, the text does say he said to them and the quizzer just says he said, then as a quiz master, you can say again because um, you don't want to be misleading and prompt for one pronoun before the other pronouns given. So I, I like prompting for the specific pronoun. It clears up a lot of situations, I think. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I think you're right. Well, then the last one that we have here for rules changes is just a, it's a really, really not very important one at all, but it's just something that has been noodling in my brain. And that is kind of a two-part thing. Number one, require that standard questions have their type be called. So in all other cases other than standard questions, you as a quiz master must call the type of question, chapter reference, chapter verse, quote, quote this in the next verse, whatever it happens to be, or finish this in the next verse. All of those types have to be called, situations have to be called, and so forth. However, standard questions do not have to have their type called currently, and I think they should. The reason I think they should is just because it makes it all the same, and consistency is better than inconsistency, objectivism is better than subjectivism, so I just like to see all standard questions be called as standard questions. Now, I've done this just by habit as a quiz master because I'm in sort of a rhythm in my room. I will always, you know, follow the exact same rhythm for how I call questions. And so if I don't call a standard question, it sort of like breaks up my rhythm. It's It feels weird because I'm not saying something where I'm like, oh, this is where the type is supposed to go, you know, kind of stuff. There's this this void and nature abhors a vacuum and so does Griffin in Bible quizzing. So, you know, that's where I want to like always call the situation. But I want to actually turn it from a you certainly can do that into a you should do that by requiring the quiz master to call them because then it's consistent, right? It's objective Yay, all those things are good. But here is the second part, which is much more a silly Griffin OCD. I've got a mental illness, but here we go anyway. And that is, I don't want to call standard questions interrogatives. The reason being is all questions are interrogatives. A chapter verse reference is an interrogative. Well, okay, I take that back. A quote question is not an interrogative. A finish the verse is not an interrogative. However, a chapter verse reference, a chapter reference, multiple answer. These are all interrogatives. So to call a standard question an interrogative to me is not right. It is somehow wrong and we need to come up with something different. So Scott, tell me that I'm just being crazy because I'm sure I am. So let, we're going to go backwards. So um, that on that last part, you're be definitely being very, very Griffin precise. Um, but I definitely am fine with calling something two syllables instead of interrog instead of five syllables right so um but on to the procedure so there's a section called the quizmaster should and there's a section called the quizmaster must and because they are different sections and differently named 
you can probably assume that under Quizmaster should, none of those are Quizmaster must. Um, but if you read the things under Quizmaster should, they're all very similar. They're all like, yeah, the Quizmaster should definitely do all of these things, but they're not really things that can be challenged, right? Like keep the quiz moving at a consistent pace. Um, read all, read questions at a normal conversation rate. Like theoretically you could challenge that if a Quizmaster is really bad, but it's just, it's not easily challengeable. Um, and so I think that section is more like a Quizmaster best practices or a preparatory actions and table procedure and things like that. Um, as opposed to Quizmaster must, which governs prompts and when, when you're calling a quizzer correct and incorrect. And those are like, you absolutely have to do them with precision and everything is very challengeable. Um, and so, but in the same vein, I always viewed announcing the question type as just do it. Like you're doing it for all the specialties. Why am I going to at random not announce 25% or 10% of my interrogative questions. It makes no sense. And as a quizzer, it, it was definitely jarring when the quizzer, quiz master would just move on. Like, it wasn't hard to know that, of course, this is an interrogative question. It's not something else. But as a quiz master, just always introduce every type. Um, to that end, we had a meet this year where a quiz master didn't introduce an interrogative question, and it was actually challenged. And somehow the challenge was accepted, which is bonkers to me because it's obviously a contrived challenge to get a question thrown out when no one was misled about something that a quiz master should do, but is obviously also in this section of like best practices, basically. Um, so I think that's bad on the quiz master. Like you shouldn't be accepting those challenges <laughs> when obviously no one was misled. Um, ah, but see, that was in my room. Um, well, did you accept one of these too? Because I'm actually referring to a different situation and wanting to protect the identities of the guilty. Ah, well, don't protect me. So it, it happened in my room. Uh, or I mean, I'm not saying it was unique to my room and maybe it happened in another room. But yeah, there was, uh, there was one question at internationals where, or, and it could have been more, but anyway. I tend to, I, I think it was probably only one where I didn't call a uh, standard question because I tend to always call standard question, right? I just, I, I just, I, I typically do the question type. It was challenged. Uh, and I went to my answer judge and my answer judge, uh, felt that it was appropriate to accept the challenge. And so I was under the belief that the answer judge had final authority. So that kind of. <laughs> We're, we're tying all of these, all of these different rule changes and stuff that we've talked about all back into a pretty bow. Uh, so that's how that happened. Well, if you look in the rule book, it actually, I don't think it says anywhere that you have to announce the type of any question. Now, for most of the specialty questions, they come with special language that the rule book does say the quizmaster has to say, like, quote, John 1, 4, which would clue the quizzer into what type of question it is. But it doesn't explicitly say, like, the quizmaster must announce it as a quote question or as a multiple answer question, which every quizmaster just does. But um, no, like if I had a situation where I didn't announce the type as an interrogative, and then after, I mean, after a team gets the question right, some other team challenges that I need to throw it out because I didn't introduce the type. Not only would I overrule the challenge if I was feeling particularly punchy. I might award a foul to the really? quiz, to the, quiz wow. or the challenge because I don't think there's a place for that, right? When someone obviously got a question right and something that a quiz master doesn't even have to do did not affect you at all, and you're just going to use that as a tool to get um, another quizzer's question 
thrown out, um, I, I would think about fouling the quizzer. Now, it might have to – the tone in which the challenge was made would probably have a large factor. And I am de- – I was definitely the type of quizzer who would make that kind of challenge. So um, I would have fouled myself if I had done it with a certain tone of voice. So, um, yeah, I think things that had, don't have an impact on – like I get what you're saying when um, – what were we talking about? The – that that bonus situation where the quote was misread by one word by the quiz master um, and didn't affect whether or not the quote was correct at all, and you still would have thrown it out because as a quiz master you can't be judging how much a quizzer was thrown off or not by that one word being misread, right? Even though it's a bonus, so like I can definitely get on board by that. Like as a quiz master, you made an error. In your assessment, you don't think it affected anything, but it's dangerous to start making those assessments, right? I get that. But right. in this case, right. I don't think it's an error at all. Um, and so, I de- like, yeah, I would, I would be very strong as a quiz master about that kind of challenge. Like, yeah. I've definitely had challenges about throwing out a question because of noise, and it was not much of noise at all. And I would think about awarding a foul in, the, in those situations if, it was, if I deemed it egregious enough. Yeah, fair enough. I think if I remember correctly, I think the situation in my room was there was somebody who jumped on the interrogative, got it wrong, and then the captain from that team challenged. Uh, and it was, and challenged because I didn't say, I didn't cl- uh, call the question type. And so, uh, you know, they were, they were, I think they were more defending their, 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 their fellow quizzer rather than, you know, trying to, you know, steal out a question from another team or something like that. Um, and, uh, I, I forget exactly. I, I believe the quizzer was just sort of stood there kind of dumbfounded for a little bit for the 30 seconds or something like that and couldn't quite place where the answer was. So there may have been, I, I doubt that my not saying interrogative had anything to do with it, but it was really more, you know, the coach or not the coach, the, uh, the, the captain challenged had a very eloquent and what sounded like a very knowledgeable, uh, thoughtful, reasonable challenge. And so, you know, turned to my answer judge who said like, yep. And I'm like, okay, I Griffin must be wrong about this one. So, uh, so I accepted that. And I, and then, and of course, after the fact, looking back in the rule book, uh, yeah, I think I, I think I accepted it in error. Yeah. I mean, and it's tough because all this stuff under Quizmaster should, like no Quizmaster should be looking at that and be like, well, it's not under must. So I'm going to pick and choose here, you know, but at the same point, I don't, think it's great grounds for a challenge unless it was super bad you know like maybe a quiz master is very demonstrative about announcing the type every single question and then just randomly doesn't do it once every five quizzes like that would be a little bit different in my estimation but um i mean we're already calling that 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 was me though right i was i was consistently calling standard questions and in that one case i didn't sure so i mean maybe that's a little more grounds but we're already we can already call it a standard and interrogative a general and all this stuff um and so whether or not we actually give it a type or not i think is that is probably less misleading than whether or not we announced it in the type that the quizzer is expecting to hear based on their district's tendencies you know yeah indeed well, we are a little bit over time, but I have one question that I wanted to throw your way, Scott. I don't recall if I had talked to you about this before. I'm still kind of recovering, even though it's been several days later, I'm still kind of recovering from the whole sleep deprivation thing. Uh, but that being said, I had this idea about how to answer situation questions, which of course, 
now that we're done with a narrative year and we're moving on to Hebrews 1st and 2nd Peter, it's totally irrelevant for next year, this upcoming season, but it'll be relevant again in the future. And that idea or the idea that I had is thus. What if we answer situation questions or what if we recommend to quizzers that we answer situation questions in inverse order in the same way that we recommend them to answer uh, reference questions backwards. So in other words, what typically happens with a situation question, and I'll say like, I need to know who said it, when and where or and why or something, right? Some, some number of things. And then I'll say question number whatever. And I start the first couple of words. Somebody jumps. They finish out the quote. I will say quote is complete. And then they will provide me the answer. What if a quizzer jumping does the opposite? instead starts by answering the question and then starts quoting the quote. Now, the reason that I think that's important is thusly. Uh, it is very unlikely that this, the, the quizzer will get the answer portion incorrect. However, the quote portion, sometimes they will miss certain like a unique word maybe there's a phrase especially with situation questions that sort of the quote spans more than one verse uh you know they might forget the last you know portion or there there might be a you know a little phrase tucked in that quote that they they don't they don't particularly get right generally speaking at, at internationals when we were talking about you know, situation questions there were some situation question specialists who were phenomenal and of course, this rule or this guideline has no bearing on them because they got pretty much every situation question correct, no matter what they were doing. But at, say, at the district level, if you say, well, I'm going to get the easy part out of the way first and then start working on the quote here. And here's kind of, I'm just kind of dodging around the real core point of it. Imagine you're the quiz master and somebody's providing you the quote, but they don't quote it exactly right. They quote it close, but there's a couple of words that aren't quite there. It's not something as cut and dry as like a unique word is missing or replaced, because that would obviously be very clearly like, no, you have to give me that unique word. I'm going to say more again, whatever it happens to be. I forget what the prompt is, probably just again um, for the situation question. So the, but imagine more, it's kind of like, eh, you're on the fence, they've ans they've given you the quote, it's probably right, but it may not be exactly right. So then as a quiz master, you're sitting there going like, well, do I say quote is complete right now? Or do I give them more time? Because the thing is, the moment that you say quote is complete, they're done, right? And then they move on to the 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 answer portion. Well, somebody might be able to challenge, right? So like as a quiz master... On the quote section, I'm kind of hesitant a little bit. I'm kind of like, well, are they kind of there yet? Maybe I should wait a couple of seconds. Maybe I should have them do it again, that kind of thing. But I'm, but I'm balancing that as, as horrible as this sounds, I'm actually balancing that against the clock, right? So like if they've got 20 seconds remaining, I'll be like, again, right? But if they've got like five seconds remaining, I'm sitting there going like, man, I, maybe I should call them, call quotas complete because they're going to run out of time, right? Whereas if you answer the answer first, all of that goes away. So anyway, what do you think? Interesting. Now, from the Quizmaster perspective, that is definitely one of the toughest situations because you definitely have to say, you have to know what you're ruling at every single point in that quotation. Like, is it enough for me to say quote is complete? And you, you have to hit it spot on. You can't be too slow about it. 
Um, and I agree that that is very difficult. In my experience, the quote and the answer um, are kind of equally difficult for quizzers. Um, and the quote can be an unknown length. Um, so that's actually an unknown to the quizzer, whereas the situation questions are unknown, even if they're difficult. And I've also seen that the mere practice of saying the quotation helps the quizzer identify the who said it and who it was to. Um, and I think as a quizzer, it's best to finish off that quote and get quote is complete because then you know that any again and more prompts are localized to your situation answers. That is true. That is true. Uh, because then you can, you can iterate over those two components separately. Yeah. It was more along the lines of like, if you've got the, the material memorized down really cold, then proceeding with the quote and then the answer is fine. I mean, it makes very little difference. I'm just more thinking at the district level, like, generally speaking, when it comes to situation questions, you will never be wrong if you just quote. So, you know, usually if you just kind of go backwards a little bit, start quoting, uh, you'll you'll get everything. You'll get the quote correct, you'll get the answer correct, and that'll be the end of it. Yeah, but most quizzers know know the material sporadically, and so they're, they might know the quotation, but they don't know all the connecting words that will help them get to the answers to the situation questions. And if they do know the material rock solid, then order doesn't really matter. And so, I don't know. I mean, it's often that a quizzer will jump on a reference question, like a CR, and then by the time they finish quoting stuff and are prompted for their question, they have forgotten what the quiz master actually said. And so when it comes to a situation question, I kind of just want them to start with what I said and at least get that right and not have to come back to it and remember, <laughs> try to remember what words I started with. Um, I, don't, I don't know if That's there's a true. whole strategic – because like with, with reference questions, there's totally something that you're trying to figure out. Whereas for situation questions, you're trying to figure out if there's more of an optimization and not like a puzzle, right? Yeah, that's true. I totally see that point. I, I think what I've experienced with the standard way of answering situation questions is that there are some quizzers who actually forget what I've a what I'm asking for in the answer. That's by true. By the time they finish the quote, um, that's also so true. Then it's a so then it's a question of like, would they forget the beginning part of the quote if they got the answer out first? Um, yeah, and I mean, and again, like you know, what we've been talking about, right? This this does not apply to situation uh, specialty people at internationals because those people were phenomenally awesome and never got a question wrong, as far as I could tell. Uh, so yeah, it's, this is more at the sort of the district level uh, whether whether that would make a difference. Yeah, I'm not sure. I think it's definitely difficult. They're among the hardest questions for less experienced quizzers because. There's non, off, almost always non-contiguous material spanning at least two verses, and there's different amounts of inf different types of information you have been given up front that you have to keep in memory. And so there's a lot of moving parts, even if the quotation is short. And sometimes the quotation is a long verse or two whole verses. Um, and I definitely saw coaches instructing quizzers to wait a long time on situation questions in our district just because of how difficult they were if you were not one of the best five quizzers on situation questions. Right. 
Well, with that, we are a little bit over, uh, but you know, audi- uh, audience listeners, we will not charge you extra for this episode. So you got some uh, extra content for free. So with that, we should uh, close. And I want to remind everybody that we very much would like to hear from you. Uh, if you have questions, thoughts, comments, disagreements in particular, we would very much like to hear from you. Uh, but even, you know, if you're just a listener and, uh, you, you know, you just want to kind of wave and say hi we like emails that just say hey i'm listening i'm from so-and-so place hi uh we love emails like that so we'd love to hear from you email us at iq at cbqz.org so iq for inside quizzing cbqz.org and then you can also follow us on twitter our account is at inside quizzing and of course if you twitter us throw things at us at inside quizzing we will answer you there as well uh, publicly between uh, podcasts. And with that, I will bid you all adieu and thank you very much for listening. Thanks for listening, everyone. See you later. 